forever. Dog. If you look at my career, when I looked at my career, you know, it'd been a combination of things between these hood dudes with hearts and um, sort of the smartest man in the room, which, you know, mimics a lot of my background, you know? So uh, in a lot of ways, I always wanted to represent those aspects. Timeless was a really fun way to do both those things. Welcome to Household Faces, the podcast where a character actor interviews other character actors. I'm your host, John Ross Bowie. You might know me from Speechless or The Big Bang Theory or one episode of Carol's Second Act starring Patricia Heaton, Kyle MacLachlan, and in one episode, me. Our guest this week is Malcolm Barrett. Malcolm has been blowing up lately after his performance as Ted White, Aretha Franklin's first husband on Genius, but you've also seen him on Timeless, Better Off Ted, Preacher. We talk about all of those. We talk about Bedford Stuyvesant, the codependency of comedy, and the challenges of doing a production of West Side Story at a predominantly white high school. Please welcome Malcolm Barrett. Malcolm, thank you so much for doing this. I'm, I'm so glad you were able to make the time. We're going to um, sort of work backwards here. I was watching um, the the Genius series on Aretha Franklin, and, and your work on that is, it's interesting to go backwards through your career because as you, which I've been doing for the week, um, as you, if you start with Aretha, you think, oh, that's what this guy does, but it's kind of an outlier role for you, wasn't it? Uh, I think as of recently, yeah, there's a, I think I do a lot of comedy, probably, probably a lot of a fair amount of television comedy. You know, I come from theater, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I went to NYU and did all of that sort of thing. And I think, um, you know, I I have a knack for comedy and and in LA, you know, you wind up doing the thing that, you know, they first find you good at. And so a a lot of it is, is for me, is, is comedy. And so... But a lot of times the theater is where I get to do a little bit more of a dramatic side. So this was fun. And, and actually it makes sense that this would be the opportunity because both of the uh, you know, original creators, it's, it's Susan Laurie Parks, um, um, who's, who did Top Dog Underdog. And you had amazing Diana Sun, amazing playwright. And Diana Sun, who uh, was known for Stop Kiss and now has a long history in, in uh, TV and writing. And so... I think we all sort of felt that energy. Actually, a lot of the people in Genius uh, come from theater. Obviously, you know Cynthia Revo, Patrice yeah. Covington, uh, Courtney B. Vance. You know, so I think it, it, it kind of all made sense that we all ended up here. But in terms of your personal arc, um, I've never. I mean, yeah, it's not a particularly comic role at all. He, he's at first you the first time you see him, he's aggressively defending Aretha. And then shortly thereafter, you realize, oh no, this guy's just aggressive. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's 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 relatively uh, aggressive. Uh, if you don't know, I play I play Ted White, who was uh, Aretha Franklin's husband and manager uh, for for a stretch of time over over uh, over a decade. Um, and he is uh, he's aggressive. He is uh, controlling. You know, there's a certain amount of care. You know. It's a it's a it's a hard role when you're playing um, someone who already exists. I don't know that I've ever done that um, in television, um, and so 
it's a it's a it's a difficult line to walk, you know, when that person isn't um, completely altruistic. Sure. Um, you know, you don't want to you don't want to completely demonize anybody, and you know, and and Ted is also still alive, you know, so it's an it's an interesting line to walk because, um, you know, you want to show the goods and bads of somebody and 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 do uh, respect and justice to the story without uh, over editorializing and, and demonizing people, which, you know, you, you kind of want to leave the story to, you want to leave that up to the story to have people feel however they feel about an individual. Well, how do you do that when you see this guy, you know, he's, he's got a really quick temper when we first, you know, right after that scene, we, there's a flashback where we see him falling in love with Aretha when she's like 12. Um, so there's there's a couple of icky moments very early on. Um, we see him um, uh, damn near sinking her chances at a recording career at Muscle Shoals. How do you find the humanity in, in this guy? What is your like, what is your approach, your process towards something like that? Yeah, I think, you know, Right. This is like super cliche stuff that that is cliche for a reason because it works, which is that, you know, yeah. you do your best to not judge your character. You right. know, you know, Ted White also lived in a, in a world where, you know, uh, you know, for a certain amount, he was uh, her defense. You know what I mean? There, if, if you listen to if you'll see biographies or, or, or listen to certain things about it, you know, they'll talk about. Like, yes, he was, you know, what, what they would call a gentleman's pimp. Do you know what I mean? But at the same mm-hmm. time, it was the closest she had to defense against this super racist, super oppressive industry that was always going to uh, attempt to treat her like shit. Do you know? And uh, and so, you know, there's the part that's finding that, that's finding the fact that it's, yeah, this is, uh, this is a bold man in a, in a bold time. Do you know what I mean? And, and right. for a lot of ways... He was her defense um, as well as, you know, her aggressor um, in a lot of ways. And, you know, there is that scene when they meet early. They, you know, from what I know, they, they, you know, and look, it plays weird because, you know, when they met, you know, from what I know, they didn't have a relationship at the time. It was sort of a passing right. thing, um, you know, because he had a pension for, for also singers like. It's very interesting. He was with Dinah Washington and right. and a couple other folks, and so you know that was his bag. And I think the minute he saw that, he he, he was he was up on there. You know, you touched on something really interesting because as I noticed that 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 Ted when we when you know chronologically when we meet Ted, he's uh, he's seen Dinah Washington. He ends up with Aretha Franklin. There's so much insecurity bubbling up out of this guy, and was that sort of your way into him? Yeah, I think, you know, at the end of the day, this is a person who I think um, saw greatness in Aretha and saw greatness in singers and I think wanted to be something bigger than he was in a lot lot of aspects. And he accomplished a lot. You know, he was a, man- was a manager and a writer. Um, but I think uh, ultimately you have to go, what does this person want? What are their obstacles? What are they afraid of? And and you find the humanity in that, you know, I think this was always at least as it is on a script, which is, you know, aside from what you can look up, look up, you know, all you can go uh, off of, um, you know, there, there was insecurity there and there was a person, you know, for me, it always comes out of love. It's, it, it was, he wants to protect Aretha. He wants to make a name for himself. 
And what does that happen when those two things clash? Um, And, and so that was, that was ultimately what was sort of going on for me in, in playing that character. I want to talk for a moment about your your growing up. You, you grew up in in Bedford Stuyvesant, and then you went to school in Lower Manhattan at Stuyvesant, mm-hmm. um, which, if you're not from New York, very competitive school. You have to test to get into it. Um, uh, there's a lot of controversy surrounding that testing process going on right now. That is not the purview of this podcast, um, but I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it. Um, what was that transition like from 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 Bed Stuy to Stuyvesant for you? Uh, you know, it's funny. I've I've talked about this a number of times. It was um, it was a culture shock in a lot of ways. Um, you know, Bed Stuy's are really interesting, particularly growing up at that time. You know, if you look in the news, you know, it's I think folks really only knew about it from hearing about a shooting or something like that or, or seeing it yeah. in a movie or something like that. In fact, it's where it's I, where Do the Right Thing takes place and was shot. Do the, do, yeah, Do the Right Thing takes place there. There's um, uh, there's a scene from this other movie, maybe Clockers and um, a bunch of stuff. It's a, it's a popular Brooklyn neighborhood. Um, but so it was very interesting because I think as a result of that, people expect you to like be coming from this like war torn place in the city. Do you know what I mean? Uh, like, in yeah. fact, I remember the very first time I did, um, I was a regular on a TV show and a reporter said to me, um, what made you want to get out? You know, and what's funny about that, that I think people don't realize is inherent in that is that it assumes that right. I was supposed to fail. And it also assumes that everyone in there wants to fail. And right. so that was a really interesting thing to see put on me especially after going to Stuyvesant, which at the time was the number one math and science high school in the country. And in a lot of ways, I had those same cultural dealings going there um, because I was one of the few black people there. It was in Manhattan. Um, I had friends on the Upper East Side. I remember going to visit a friend and ringing her bell and, and an old lady coming by, ringing that same bell and saying, you know, there's a black man at the door. Do you know him? Um, you know, it was, it was a, it was a really interesting Wait, how old were you? Uh, 18. Okay. All right. So technically a man, but still. Well, I think teen is in the name. Uh, yeah, it's right there. It's right there. It's right there. It's it's pretty close. Um, So it wasn't like, I mean, but you, you said yourself that it's a, it it was a a culture shock. And I want to, I want to hear some more about that because I, I, you know, I grew up in, in hell's kitchen and a lot of people thought that was a complete war zone and it was, it gentrified before bed sty did, but only a couple years. Um, and, uh, a lot of people were like, oh my God, you know, this is, you know, bullets flying overhead. And like, that wasn't quite the case, but it was still a shift when I went to school in Chelsea and all my friends were from the West village. All of a sudden there was still a big shift in that. So is that what you found? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely that. And also, you know, I was a, I was a pretty poor kid, you know, relatively, um, you know. And so, I mean, I guess depending on actually the year. Um, but, you know, doing that and going to public schools and then going to Stuyvesant, which was, I think, one of the largest high schools in the country um, population-wise, for one, just thousands of kids. Um, we had like eight floors and an elevator and an escalator and, um, you know, they'd keep time capsules inside a little 
glass um, uh, square and in, in, in the, all along the buildings and things. So even things like that were like a huge thing. Like I don't, I don't think really any high school, very few high schools in America have uh, elevators and, and escalators and things of that nature that don't have like a number one football team. You know what I mean? Like our, our team was the Lilacs. You know what the I mean? Lilacs. So we, wait, it used to be. Oh wait, that, that might have. It was been, the peg legs no, when I was we growing the peg up. Legs, yeah. Which also because strikes Peter Stavisant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> nothing strikes fear into the hearts of uh, players than someone on one leg um, <laughs> trying to tackle you. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so I mean, it was it was interesting, you know. So I mean, I I, I got education. I met some friends. I'm still I'm actually in a chat group with some of my high school friends now. Um, but it was weird because, all right, put it like this. My, my high school quote was ignorance is mistaking me for one of the other eight black guys. Uh, because oh, that, wow. because I think, uh, my senior year, I was one of eight black seniors and I definitely got called each of them oh, <laughs> throughout the course of it. Oh, you know, God, that's or, all or... you had to say. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, there was definitely like. Hey, will you look after uh, Amani? I don't know him. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I did know him, but, you know, for the sake of the argument. I had right, to... sure, sure, sure. <laughs> don't presume that I know him. Yeah, I don't <laughs> It is not for you to say that I know him. <laughs> yeah, you know. Did you do, I don't remember, I remember them having incredible facilities, Stuyvesant, but was there a ton of theater there? Did you do theater at Stuyvesant? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's one of the reasons I um, was able to cross over into NYU like that because um, I, I actually didn't have much school spirit for uh, partially because of some of the reasons I just mentioned. Sure. Um, but during, I'd say, junior, senior year, um, like you said, they had huge facilities. I mean, we we had sing and like we just our, the school had money, you know, and mm-hmm. so we we do that and. You know, and that was like, you know, written. Talk about produced. talk about Sing, just to clarify for. for so those for those who don't know Sing, Sing is, I, I think, a sort of national thing where um, um, the kids, the student bodies compete in a theatrical contest where they write their own show and they write, direct it, act in it. And then the um, it's judged by alumni. Um, and so you have soft frost which is freshman and sophomore versus juniors versus seniors and um we just had ridiculous budgets like we had like we had pyrotechnics in in our shows which i, I remember going to the when when Stuyvesant was on 15th street and my friends would go there because i'm a, a bit older than you i remember just going there and being like what the fuck is this phantom of the opera shit look at this place <laughs> it was in it was insane their theater program was just in, in insane just in terms of like the fact that you had kids who were doing, because I tell you this, it wasn't the any adults running these pyrotechnics. It was like, you know, the fucking <laughs> the fucking tech kids or whatever. Like, that. like I don't know how we got away with that or get away with that, but other than the answer being money. Um, but yeah, junior senior year, I just did a ton of plays. Um, I was just in everything. I was like, because I was a I was a performer. I was the funny kid and all of that growing up and. And in elementary school, that was, you know, I always sort of had an eye on that. And then, um, you know, performing music or acting or something. And in um, junior, senior year, I was just doing tons of plays. And I remember, I think probably junior year, I had built a name for myself in theater, um, which was fun. It was great. It was like, I, I, I partially I liked it because I was like, 
oh, I get to kiss a girl, you know, either on stage sure. or at an, at an after party, much like adult life. Um, right. and, and so I remember, um, someone was going around and they were like, Hey, I'm blanking on her name now. I'm such an idiot. Um, but she was like, Hey, um, I'm interning for this agent. She needs young black actors who can sort of sing. Do you want to, um, interview with her or see her audition for her? And I was like, sure. Um, cause I was, uh, I was two out of three of those. Um, I, I, I could barely sing. Um, but I was like, sure. Cause I think it was Aida was, uh, going on at the time. And oh, so, wow. uh, and I, so I think she was looking for Finney Ludke. I think she was looking for, um, that type. Um, and so I went in, um, I did two monologues, one from the disposal and one from West side story. Um, and then what she, did you do from West side story? Oh, you're going to love this. So initially I was officer Krupke. Um, okay. and then I was Lieutenant shrank. Um, which if you, if you guys know West side story, so here's the funny thing about doing West side story at a mostly Asian high school. <laughs> at a mostly Asian and white high school. So the um Oh dear. Uh, strap in everybody. <laughs> strap in. So the Jets, the Jets are the white guys, right? That's correct. Yeah. So we had that. <laughs> you were covered. You were set for Jets. <laughs> we were set for Jets as far as I remember. And then the Sharks were like I think it was all Asian maybe like one Hispanic or something like that, like one or two Hispanic people. And that was, and that was, and that was it. Right. And then, so I was officer Krupke, but I was a good actor. So my, the acting teacher, Mr. Grasso, he's like, why did you play Lieutenant Shrank? Cause I think someone had, couldn't do it. Now, if you know the character of Lieutenant Shrank, he is racist. Yeah. So profoundly, so it's profoundly racist. So picture, and, and we're all also 17. <laughs> I mean, 18 okay. or whatever the... What, what is it? Oh, shit. I just remembered. I wasn't 18 when that white lady said that thing. I was 15. 15? Right. Yeah, because it's wow. high school. It's high school. Well, that's, yeah. that's, was, that's why I asked, because the fact that... It's that, it's that horrible thing where... where maybe this isn't for me to say, where black teens get it. upgraded and get aged you up get automatically. <laughs> you get you in the worst possible way in the worst case scenarios it's exactly that yeah it was definitely because i remember i was like man um i i've yet to come um, <laughs> <laughs> this is weird west side story <laughs> west side story so 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 i'm profoundly racist um in a, in a very ironic situation um, so I'm racist against these like a Asians and one Latino who are all playing Latinos. Mm -hmm. And I remember I have a line that goes, uh, I say all this stuff and it, it plays enough. You know what I mean? I'm at least a different race, mm -hmm. uh, than most of these kids, but there's a line where it goes, uh, I got the badge, you got the skin. And, uh, and I remember wow. my friend's dad was white and he goes like how do you do he's great i mean you know he's black <laughs> and so i remember i was fine with playing the role but i remember i went to mr grasso and i was like i think we should just take out the line i got the badge you got the skin i think we can the rest you know it's high school we can there's a you know what is it a suspension of disbelief 
up until that line. Now we've we're doing too much. Well, <laughs> yeah. Now it's like now it's like what a very bold choice from like a German avant-garde theater at that <laughs> yeah, point. You know, yeah. <laughs> at that point, you know, you're doing something very like, oh, we're saying something else now. Yeah, something's going. It's like that. Okay. There was there was like a Hungarian company that did an all white <laughs> corgi and best four years ago, yeah, exactly. which was a nightmare. And uh, now we're heading into that territory. Yeah, of like, yeah. wait, what are we? What, what's being said here? <laughs> Which segment of NYU did you go to? There's different schools in the acting department. Yes, there's different schools in the acting department. I went to Playwrights Horizons. Um, okay. Because that one seemed to make the most sense to me. How so? For where I was. Um, I had an agent at the time. Um, I I was, in my opinion, a great actor. Sure. Already. So... Um, ETW didn't, I, it didn't make sense to take anything that was solely acting based. Cause I was like, I'm already good at acting. I'm not going to spend my money on four years of people telling me something I'm already good at. <laughs> e, 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 ETW is the experimental theater wing. Yeah. There's the experimental theater wing. And then the rest are all just named after schools of acting, essentially like Adler right. and, and a couple yeah. others. And so playwrights was the only one that was well-rounded. You could do directing, you could do design, um. Um, and you could do acting. So I was in there as a director actor, particularly after the first year. Um, so the people in my directing class in the senior year version were people like, um, Leslie Headland. Um, oh, wow. I know Leslie. Yeah. Yeah. Leslie Headland, uh, Janixa Bravo. Uh, I know Janixa. Chav- yeah. Yeah. Rachel Chavkin, Allegra Libinati, <laughs> um, uh, all people who, t- who today are working directors. Um, yeah, yeah, it was a group of seven of us. Um, and so I'm the only one I think out of that group that just became a straight, straight actor for the most part. But what, what kind of stuff did you direct while you were at NYU? Um, I directed probably the first thing I did was, um, no, that's not the first one I did. Well, I'll just name them. I did when the chickens came home to roost, um, which is a Lawrence Holder play about, um, Malcolm X um, confronting Elijah Muhammad about his cheating. Um, Chicken Come Home to Roost is it, that's a reference to when Malcolm got suspended from the nation for making that comment about JFK's death. Is that right? Yes, yes, yes. When he refers to um, you know uh, when the chickens come chickens coming home to roost, you know, Which and they ask the violence is going to perpetuate itself. Exactly, and he and they right, ask him if right. he's sad. He's like, you know, I've never been sad when chickens came home. You know, something to that effect. <laughs> Um, and so it was great. I love doing that play because here was the thing when I, when I did it, I wanted to do a play that, so a lot of the plays or a lot of popular theater at the time, or at least what I had access to, um, if you were looking at black playwrights, um, a lot of it was popular stuff that's popular in the sixties, seventies and earlier works, right? Like, um, I think you also had August Wilson as well, who, who, chronicled um you know black history in, in multiple decades which is what but he was kind for. of the only guy who could get on broadway in the late 90s yeah he was the only guy on broadway and so there was a dearth of material uh i think i'm using that right there's uh lack of so. abundance um yeah so one of one of the we've also would have accepted paucity i i appreciate that but Bo- bowie's really okay. good with a uh, vernacular 
Um, so yeah, it was really interesting because, um, and you know, I guess, uh, trigger war- warning for people who, who don't like racial slurs. Uh, but it was a big deal of mine to find a play that didn't have the word nigger in it. Um, wow. which, which is, wow. if you'll, if you'll look at most plays with black people, that word's in there, you know, wow. which is like cr- crazy, you know, and, and, you know, part of it is because it was a sort of revolutionary act up until that point, you know, one, we're just sort of dealing with that language in general. And two, it was sort of, you know, an ownership of that. But I just kind of, I was just at a place artistically where I, I literally, I picked up on that and I was just like, I'd like to do a talking head play that doesn't have that word in it. Mm-hmm. And then I came across, um, when the chickens came home to roost by Lawrence Holder. And that language isn't in there at all. And it's one of those things like, you know, sometimes you read through a piece and it takes you a while and you're like, oh, and you got to contemplate, you know, a really good piece. You, you probably figure out in the first five to 10 pages. And that play was that, you know, it's literally right. just two men going after each other and, and playing mind games with each other. Um, you know, before Malcolm X has to, before Malcolm X winds up leaving the nation. And so I just loved it. And, I think um, Iceman Cometh or or what was it? Or was it American Buffalo? Something like that with um, John C. Riley and I think Philip Seymour Hoffman. They were doing a two-hander. True West. True West, that's what it was. And they, and were they switching. would switch roles. They yeah. would switch. And so I had my friends Darian Deshaun and Daryl Watson. And I was like, we're going to do it. And we're going to, because they weren't sure who wanted to be what. And I was like, we're going to switch off each time. Um but I couldn't do it because one of them had to be gone for like a week to do another play or be in Rodders. I don't, I don't know. So I was playing uh, Malcolm X for like two weeks and, um, in rehearsal, which was fun. Um, but it's a great play because, you know, I also came from, like I said, I came from not having a lot. So it was a perfect play for me because it wasn't a lot of bells and whistles. It was, it was literally just that room, you know. And I also wanted to do something revolutionary because – you know, I felt like in theater or the impression I got while I was in theater was that people want to do theater that they want to do, you know, speak to the bourgeoisie and they want to speak to society, but they want to do it. They do old revolutions. They don't do re- relevant revolutions. Interesting. <laughs> Say more. Do you know Say more about I mean? that. Like, well, I, I, think I think I do, but it's well, it's easier to I think sometimes it's easier to address for some folks, it's easier to address the ills of society if those ills have seemingly gone away already. Do you know oh, what I mean? Okay. So it's, it, it's it, easier to do Raisin in the Sun than it is to do to do Top Dog Home the Roost, you know, when the chickens came home to roost, because it's it's a little too relevant to what's going on now. Do you know what I mean? And so that well, was, there's that there's that risky tendency among among New York liberal theater goers, and I'm speaking of myself, to sit there and congratulate yourself on how far you've come. Yes, yes. And so I wanted to do something where it's like, okay, let's speak to what's going on now in a lot of ways. And um, I also wanted to do stuff for people from where I'm from in Brooklyn. You know what I mean? Like. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't want to do a bunch of plays that are only admired by people who study plays. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I It's like, if you do Adrian, if you watch an Adrian Kennedy play, you have to have studied Adrian Kennedy in order to understand what is happening. You know what I mean? Because you watch it and you're like, 
I don't know what's happening. And then you read up and you're like, oh, I didn't know she had, uh, her life didn't go well at eight. And then she had a period <laughs> then. And then this is going on. Like you have to read, you have to study 12 books to learn how to <laughs> really study this one play. And that's not what I wanted to do. You know what I mean? It's fun to explore as an artist, but it's not the work that I ultimately want to do. Ultimately, the work I want to do is for people who are like me, whether or not they've studied the things I've studied. I want to jump ahead for a moment here because you're raising some interesting issues. Um, speaking about like addressing societal ills as they're going on, watch this jump. I want to talk about Better Off Ted. Sure. Which I thought was, and full disclosure, came really close to the role that Jonathan Slavin got. Doesn't matter. That's how we met, actually. So I got <laughs> I Malcolm and Jonathan out of the out of the uh, situation, so it all worked out. But um, I remember when I was re-watching it this week, I was like, oh, that's right. That's why this one broke my heart, because these scripts were so good and so <laughs> smart. And there was such a sense of calling out corporate bullshit a few years before that was really in vogue. There's a there's a whiff of Occupy Wall Street in that show before such a thing existed, you know? Um, was that something that drew you to the to the script? Yeah, I mean, so that was created by Victor Fresco, who is always ahead of his time. Um, he did Dinosaurs back in the day. Uh, Andy Richter controls the universe. Um, uh, what, what what is uh, Santa Clarita Diet? That's right. Um, um, so he is really good at looking at society, at taking a comedic look at modern society. Um, and, yeah, give me just a, a little bit of an absurdist push to it, but not yes. too much. Yes, and that's what Better Off Ted was. It was it was about the people people with heart working in corporate America. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And and so which exists, right? And so what is that? I did it for it, years. Yeah, <laughs> you know. And and so what is that juxtaposition? And also the banality of it all, um, and so that that was really fun to me, and and also just playing, you know, a scientist nerd. You know, I think at, at the I was on my upswing of playing quirky scientists. At that uh -huh. point, I was really in my comfort zone of doing that at the time. So, and I had some really strong choices at the time, and so I was I, I was excited to do that. You know, it was it was exciting to play the super weirdo. Um, and also, at that point, me and Jonathan Slavin, um, oddly enough, had been had been known for going in for similar roles. Sometimes mm -hmm. we both had just would play these sort of quirky guys with with heart. Um, and so, you know, we had always talked about wanting to work with each other. And so, you know, all things came together in, in, a, in a fun way that we actually got to work together and became really good friends to this day. The chemistry between you two is really old school comedy team shit. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm watching the way you guys are synced up and you're just in, in the modern parlance. Uh, uh, my, my favorite current slang term is uh, somebody understanding the assignment. And yes. uh, it just felt like you two understood the fucking assignment. There's like an, an, a level where it never goes over the top, but there's a level of almost like, Commedia sneakiness going on with the two of you. Yeah, our our thing was, um, it's always funnier if we do it together. Yeah, and that's that exactly was, it. That was our 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 theory was that these folks really don't exist well 
without each other. They were they were codependent, um, grown men. And so for us, the comedy was always in, you know, even, you know, we'd looks like we had this thing where we'd even throw each other looks and we wouldn't give each other a heads up. We just knew, I think me and him work in the same beats comedically. Uh-huh. So when we would have these physicalities, we both inherently knew when to do it and they inevitably would be together. And, you know, a lot of our comedy um, that we would bring into it wasn't in the language because the language was very ornate and very good, um, the script wise. A lot of it was in our physicalities. You know, mm-hmm. most of the physicality that you would see on that show, be it um, our super soft chest bumps or, um, you know, w- weird, weird little things that we would do to each other the way that we would walk. Just the little head cocks you guys will do when you both know something's wrong. Yeah. We would, choreographed. Yeah, they were never we, they were never choreographed. We'd never That's amazing. We'd, we'd never talk about it. We literally just had this. I mean, maybe once. You know, maybe once in the first, maybe once the first time or something like that, probably um, mm-hmm. like first or second, we would, you know, it was just like, oh, what if we look at each other? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, it, and it really worked. Um, so, you know, and even most, like I said, most of his physical bits, like the scene is barely over and me and him would just find little stuff to do. You know what I mean? I remember it was just, I was walking a potato, you know, with electrodes on it. I don't know. Like it would just be weird random stuff and we were super into it in fact there was one time here's the two most parts where we really dialed in which is um there was a there's a scene where it's me and him in the elevator right before some girl walks in that that i'm dating that you find out later i'm dating and when you see us in the elevator we're not talking at all um because it's our theory that like when we're not doing anything we're just kind of shut down like we're not involved because just we're recharging. Yeah, we're just kind of recharging because the also the thing the weird things about it is like these guys have heart but they're also kind of evil scientists. They just don't know it. So right. they, <laughs> they so they're kind of disassociative without even really realizing <laughs> it. Um so that was our thing like literally you're in the elevator and we're both just looking and waiting for the thing to go down and hit the number. And then the other thing was there was one episode where they split us up, you know, when shows going on for a little bit, you know, they like to move the characters around, find different relationships. And they split us up one episode. And I remember we went to the producer and we was like, that can't ever happen again. Not that it was bad or not good. It was just like, we both were just like, I don't know what we do if we're not together. <laughs> well, was that was was that playable? Did you just sort of play the episode sort of adrift? Uh, I think so, probably. I'm, I'm sure there was. <laughs> I mean, because they're both kind of a little scared at the office without each other. Do you know what I mean? So I'm sure there was, but we definitely, much like our characters, were like, we can't do this without each other. Please don't ever write an episode like that. <laughs> we're not. Where we're not directly next to each other for the entirety of the episode. Like even there would be scenes where there would be one of us and we would always be like, okay, so where is he? Where is it? Where is, I don't understand where he is if he's not here. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and 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 there's reference made to the fact that you guys have home lives, but it doesn't kind of matter. It's just like you guys are each each other. I'm really close to my mom and he has a wife that he's not into. Um, you yeah. know, so we're not, we're not the most well-adjusted individuals at all. So it was, it was, it was a real fun ride. I mean, Johnny always talks about this. It's like, you know, if we hated each other, it could have been horrible. Like our first day 
was us in a two-person hazmat suit. And for right. the record, there is no two-person hazmat suit. No, so, yeah. so that's cozy. Just, yeah, so it's literally, it's like first day we meet each other. Well, not meet each other because we kind of knew each other by that point. But we're literally, it's this, them sizing us for this hazmat suit, you know, and we're just sort of crotch to butt with each other inside of this little thing um, and our arms together, you know, figuring this out. And, you know, imagine doing that for a, for an episode. Um, you know, you, you, you got you, you, you better like, like the other person. You better you like better your colleagues. Like the person. You know, I was like, would, do, you mind, do you mind if I get back, Johnny? Thank you. Look, <laughs> I really appreciate that. <laughs> it's it's an interesting piece of work. I it, It's on, uh, this was a weird thing. Uh, uh, almost your entire career is readily available on Hulu. Everything I was looking for was on oh, yeah? Hulu. Yeah, I didn't have to uh-huh. go to any other streaming service. Your whole run, there's a massive run of Malcolm material on, on Hulu. Um, right, but what was interesting section. about Better Off Ted in this modern context was this sense of as people, as we're slowly coming back from the pandemic and, and people are starting to ask themselves, hey, does my employer give a shit about me? Better Off Ted is calling that stuff out 10 years ago, 12 years ago. Yeah. They're ad- addressing that corporate disregard. They're addressing corporate disregard. I mean, there's an episode where um, where the, um, you know, they install sensors, but they don't read black people. And so right. the company gets, uh, hires a white person to for each black person. Um, but then they have to hire a black person for each white person. So we're not just giving a random white person a job, but then you need a white person for that black person. And so it's, and so it just dipped into sort of one technology, not reading black skin, which has been a thing. Um, uh, and two, it dipped into, corporations who you know are chasing their tail because they don't actually care they're just trying to you know cover their asses um they 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 called the fake meat thing you know every time there's an article about meat being made in a lab you know i get tagged in a tweet because we had (laughs) you know because we had an episode about that you know so it it really was ahead of the game you know It it was frustrating because i i loved it and we we, I think, fell short, just short of the class of um, being revived or being, you know, the sort of uh, television or quirky television that people are digging, you know, because it fell short of, you know, just uh, uh, friggin' what, what's the name with with Portia de Rossi, uh, Arrested, Development, Arrested Development, you know, like they brought yeah. back Arrested. It was before streaming had hit the way it was and folks were trying to bring all sorts of shows back. I mean, look, I did Timeless. They literally brought that show back. You know what I mean? Right, so it right. was it was a it was a weird thing because it was sort of culty. Um, and what's funny is, so TV sucks at advertisement. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna rant about the advertising um, publicity department. Speak of freely. I, I think Better Off Ted was a streamer show. It was absolutely had yeah. no business being on ABC. Yeah, and so it's it's funny because. You know, they'll be like, well, you know, they're not sure how to promote it. And you're just like, you just, uh, you show commercials. <laughs> that's really, that's really all it is, you know, because they'll hesitate because they're like, oh, we don't know how to do that. And, you know, we wouldn't have billboards. And, you know, they'd be like, oh, we have billboards. And I remember Jay was like, where? Tell me where. Where are these signs up? I will go to that street. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> we have nothing. And it's just like, so we they would do things as, so this is before even, you know, it's before streamers. So it's like probably just before something like a CW seed 
or anything like that. Do you know what I mean? Right. It's before right. Netflix has gotten to where it is. And, and so, you know, shows are busy trying to get in on the viral thing. So, you know, we would shoot little viral videos for the web or things like that. And so, but the, it was so ass backwards that our, you know, our videos for it wouldn't show up until like, you know, we'd be doing interviews for things and it's just like, when does it air? Like, oh, it airs tomorrow. Okay. I don't know if you guys know how the internet works, but you don't do ads for a show on the internet the day of the show. Like, you have to build. Like, it's not that, you know, no one cares anymore after that. So, you know, there's all these like little personal promos that you'll see from actually probably during that period in 2008. You can probably see a lot of like sort of viral um, videos of or a little homemade uh, w- web videos made by the casts of shows as a way of, um, you know, the TV shows and the networks or in particular ABC trying to advertise the shows, you know. They were trying to do stuff like that with The Office. They did mini-sodes for The Wire for a little while there. All shows that initially had trouble finding an audience. And Better Off Ted was uniquely designed for that because you guys had built-in commercials for Viridian Dynamics anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, if, yeah, they're just, but if they're just advertising it as a generic workplace comedy, it doesn't quite land. No, no. And those commercials, I mean, you look at those commercials, they, they'd go viral now. Do you know what Absolutely. I mean? Because they Absolutely. were they were these bumpers. They were these sort of subtly ironic um, commercials, like um, in-house commercials. Do you know what I mean? Where it'd just be like, friends, people, places, Viridian Dynamics. <laughs> Future, better. <laughs> you know, these sort of things. And, you know, they totally would have played that sort of irony and, and sort of that, that 30 second viral clip, like that's the type of thing that you would post now, you know, uh-huh. or like Jimmy Fallon, you know, they'll now post that to YouTube and those things do big and do well. Um, you know, they'll do portions of, of a show. And so I think they were just trying to figure out how to do it at the time. brought you out to LA was it a particular job or was it just sort of I'm throwing my hat in the ring or yeah I had a particular job I was um in New York um doing theater and tutoring and you know getting the odd um acting gig um and I got I probably left school two or three by that time two times one for acting reasons one because my scholarship ran out and then Mm -hmm. the third time I left um, I got a show called Louis with Louis Guzman. Um, oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, it was uh, Will Gluck produced that. Will Gluck produced that, and then um, so I auditioned. I and and I got the part. I got the part as a series regular. And so, um, you know, for those who who don't know how it worked, which is sort of weird for you to be uh, ignorant about the acting business and listening to this podcast. Um, yeah, but, you're like 40 minutes into this thing. We've gone pretty deep, but go ahead, take them, take them through it. Yeah. Um, so, so I did the pilot and so like the pilot, I did it, I shot it. And then it's, you know, you waiting to see like if it gets picked up and then it got picked up and then, you know, within a week I had to move to LA, um, moved in with a buddy of mine and just stayed, you know, did the show. Um, it got canceled. It got, 
an actor got replaced, then it got canceled. Um, and then I stayed in LA to just sort of kick the ball and see what would happen. You know, I, I, you know, I never even really expected, I had no idea what would happen. Um, and so it got canceled and I was like, all right, well, I'll stay here and, and, and we'll see how it goes. Um, I remember, <laughs> I remember when the other, when the other guy got, uh, fired from the show, we fired, we fired two actors. The same, we fired two actors for the same part. Um, and I remember, because we fired a guy from the pilot, and then he was on for the series. And then, I don't know if I said this, I don't know if they called me during the pilot, doubtful, but when the guy who then got replaced and um, was getting replaced, they called, and they go, so-and-so is uh, getting fired. And uh, it's like on a Saturday, you know. And I go, um, do I still have a job? And he goes, yep. And I go, okay, all right. <laughs> Have a good day. <laughs> well, it, it's hard not to, it's not that you're being mercenary. It's just that there's always bullets flying overhead, you know, and, and there comes a point where you're just like, that's rough. You know, I, I, I myself have been fired from, mm -hmm. from gigs uh, and it, it, it wounds the ego, but you know, also the world just keeps turning. Yeah, out. yeah, yeah, exactly. I think I was recently replaced on a show. And I kind of knew I was. I was like, I don't think this is going to happen, you know. Right, right. So it's just the... That's you the always work. know. You always yeah, know. You, you kind of do. You know right out of the gate, you're like, oh, something is fucking rotten in this state, yeah, yeah, man. Yeah. I am not... Yeah. Well, everything that worked in the audition is not working yeah. now. <laughs> no, it, Yeah, that one was interesting because it was like, it was a back and forth for me to get it. And then I got it. And then I was just like, I was like, I can do this on my head, but I feel like you guys want somebody else standing on my head. You know what I mean? But like, yeah, it's it's funny because I remember um, after the first time I saw that, I kind of always waited to see because I was like, someone's always loses a job after the pilot, I feel like, you know what I mean? And so I'm, al yeah, I'm always kind often. of waiting. And I remember there was one time uh, I did a pilot for a show. And uh, after a lot of times people get fired, like during the course of before shooting the pilot, like you'll get cast and then there'll be like a table read or something like that. And then, you know, maybe you lose somebody. And it was funny. I, I did the show and, and some girl goes, uh, or a, a woman actress uh, goes, uh, and, and I'll tell you this. <laughs> she, she goes, uh, Hey, have you ever seen someone fired after a table read? And, uh, and I thought in my head, well, I will after this. <laughs> oh, <my God>. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> <laughs> oh I'm about to. You know what I mean? Oh shit. Like clearly she said oh, shit. You know? Were there um I, I usually ask this later, but we're kind of we're sort of on the topic right now. Was there a role you really wanted that that got away? Was there a, a is there a big role that got away from you? Um not really, and I don't know if that means I'm not auditioning for big enough roles or I'm a psychotic. Because <laughs> um, you know what? I'm I'm very zen about not getting roles like i'm trying to think of who's gotten a role that i really would have been that i really would have been remiss if i didn't get i was up i was up for lakeith stanfield's role in atlanta um oh wow yeah okay. that one that one is probably one of the bigger ones only because that feels like that's like a game changer you know what i mean and you see what's happening there and you're like frick i could have been in all those things you know what i mean and i think lakeith just won totally embodies the character and, and two 
I loved all the opportunities he's he's had and 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 what he's done with it uh, since. Um, but that was that was probably that one's pretty big in general. You're just annoyed, <laughs> yeah. You know, no, sure, sure. And I, I, it's also like it's also it's very easy to kind of like think eight steps ahead and be like, oh, but you know, if I'd gotten that, then I also would have yeah. gotten this, and I would my career would have taken that exact trajectory. And you don't know that. No, not at There's all. There's no way to know that not at all. all. Not that's you know that's 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 stinking thinking as uh, uh, every therapist will tell you. Um, in the course of my Malcolm Barrett festival this week, I I, I caught up with Timeless, which I really enjoy. Um, it's just it's it's sort of an American Doctor Who finally, <laughs> and I, I I found it really endearing. And what I loved about it was the elephant in the room that is addressed in very possibly your first scene in the show. When the show started airing, I was working with Cedric Yarborough. You probably know Cedric. I do. And Cedric and I were looking at a uh, billboard for Timeless, and he was like, I don't know, man. I just want to tell him, I just want to say to Malcolm, don't go. Just, <laughs> just, just don't go. And and I thought, ha, 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 that's so funny. I wonder if the show addresses that. And it does immediately. Like the first thing out of your mouth to your boss is there is no time in American history that has been awesome for people like me. Yeah. <laughs> was that, was it written like that? Or was that adjusted after you were cast? No, it was, it was written like that. It was, it was 100% okay. written like that, which is. Uh, they wanted a black guy for that part. Yeah, which is what, what I really loved about that. I mean, all, uh, all of those characters were really written, um, one, to our st- strengths, but two, very heavily how they were, I mean, on the page where it really it leapt there, you know, and it's part of what I, why I wanted to do the part, um, you know. If, if you look at my career, or when I looked at my career, you know, it'd been a combination of things um, between these hood dudes with heart and um, sort of the smartest man in the room. And which, you know, mimics a lot of my background. You know what I mean? I went to Stuyvesant and I, I come from the hood, you know? So uh, in a lot of ways, I always wanted to represent those aspects in some way or another. And so timeless was a really fun way to do both those things to one uh combine the characters i had already been playing but two um that character rufus was as a personality the closest to myself that i'd ever played on television Um, i was gonna ask you know there's something I, i i love the fact that he's the only he's on the ship because the only guy who knows how to fly it he's the only one with the scientific know how and he also gets fight choreography yes Yes. Yeah. It's well, it's interesting because, um, like I said, I, I love them because he is a sort of a, he, he is smart and he's a smart ass. Um, mm-hmm. and then, you know, he, what was great about Kripke and Sean Ryan, the, the writers of the show and, and the entire writing team is the character would grow. You know, I, 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 you know, the frustrating thing about television a lot of times is a lot of times you're playing the same beats and um, and it's yeah. and it's on purpose it's to kind of reintroduce the characters to a growing audience right so you wind up doing mm-hmm. a lot of the same beats over and over again and you know there was that but then there was also this aspect of you know at some point this guy who doesn't even like leaving the office 
now has to travel through time and, and fight adventures and face Nazis. Right. You know, at some point, uh-huh. you know, it's like I have this scene with a gun where I'm have to shoot this guy. And then, you know, I'm also thinking to myself, wait, you did blow up my you did blow up a team of Nazis. It was off screen, but you did yep. blow them up. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, so it's it's that weird little thing. And beat up some redneck cops. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I definitely, say, yeah. I definitely saved a vice president. You did some shit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I got some things there. So it was it was really fun because they allowed him to grow. And, you know, the arcs that I had over the course of episode would be arcs I was hoping for in the course of a season with some other shows, you know? Um, Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah. You know, because you were essentially filming a movie every episode. We never repeated a time period. So every episode was like making a pilot, you know, and it was also, you know, I also had this um, romantic thing with uh, Claudia Dumit's character, you know, and I, I didn't expect for that to ever reach fruition. You know, not on a show mm-hmm. where, you know, you had a lead relationship with a white couple. You know, you had your 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 love relationship, your your romantic, and so I never expected them to actually build on the promise of us actually getting together. You know, this this interracial couple of of black and and Australian and and uh, Lebanese. Like I, I just didn't see that ever being a true um, forefront relationship. I remember they had us do a little chemistry read after we had already gotten the part um, for rehearsals. And I remember thinking, this is not really ever going to happen. They're never really actually going to have us have a relationship. Who cares about our chemistry? Um, And then they did. And it became a thing. And it became, you know, we had our little couple name. And, you know, it was really cool. And we became good friends and would hang out and, you know, it was it was awesome, and I was glad we got to see that. Like you would literally see them playing video games together. You know, um, so it was awesome. It's interesting that that show. Um, I was struck when I was watching the credits that it was Eric Kripke and Sean Ryan, who were very different showrunners. If you look at their, we'll call them their solo careers, but. Kripke does really well at building mythologies and Ryan does really, really good job at taking these people home and building their lives. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm talking, this is, you know, one, one half supernatural, one half the shield, you know, there's a, there's a real sense of, of lived in fantasy. Yes. Yeah. I think, you know, I think people were probably surprised at Sean Ryan because it's just like, he's, he's done this gritty, rated R cop show that is effed up to the fullest extent. And then you got, you know, like you said, our Kripke from Supernatural, this one of the longest running ever fantasy supernatural shows. Um, and they combine for, like you said, this, this huge world building with heart, you know, and this action yeah. too, you know, they're really also really mm-hmm. good at action um, and action set pieces yeah. and using that in the way that feeds the story. Um, yeah. and it's one of the reasons why I wanted to do it. You know, I, I, I was a fan of the shield and at the time a fan of, um, supernatural. I tell you how far technology has come. I wanted to do that because I had actually started watching supernatural over at my boy's house who was watching it through Netflix. Um, back when Netflix was sending CDs 
you know, when Netflix would say, so oh, he was just getting, he would just, he would just send away for the DVDs. Yeah, and that's yeah. How, that's how he yeah, caught up on Supernatural. About the DVDs. So, you know, this is back when Netflix would, you, you'd get like three DVDs at a time. You'd watch uh-huh. whatever and uh-huh. send it and they'd send you DVDs back. Like it was an AOL subscription. And so right, I, right. I just was just constantly, you know, and you'd get like episode one through three, then four through seven, you know, and then eight through 12. <laughs> and so that's how I watched um supernatural and 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 the shield i think later on i got shield dvds um personally like i just bought bought one or something like that um (laughs) but yeah you know before you could just get episodes streaming on your television um yeah so i was a huge fan before i got it and that was the one it was i think i was deciding between that and some other role and i had to turn down auditioning for this other role because i was like if someone else gets this part i will kill that person Oh, I, yeah, you don't want that. Yeah. Because of the nature of this podcast, I end up watching a great deal of Supernatural, which is a hell of a show to hop on midstream. Um, there's a lot going on. Speaking of which... I also have to pop in occasionally in the middle of Preacher, which is pretty fucking confounding um, to to hop into that. It, just in the middle of season two, um, and they're trying to chase God through New Orleans. Yeah. Um, you end up a vampire at one point? I do. I do. Yeah. How, how, how was that experience? <laughs> <laughs> that was, Preacher was one of the funnest experiences um, on its face. It's an amazing cast. It's a fucking incredible cast. Really great cast. Dominic Cooper, Ruth Nega, uh, Joe Gilgan. I'm not sure if I say his name right. Um, and a host of other people. Julie Emery, who, who's become my, my huge friend. We were big partners on that show. We played Hoover and Featherstone. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm, you know, that mm-hmm. was a weird period for me because I was shooting Timeless and Preacher at the same time. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so... Where did you shoot? Did you shoot Timeless here in L.A.? Well, the first season was in Canada. So okay. so the thing is, like, Timeless was always about to get canceled, right? So right, right. we shot the first season in Canada, then I got Preacher, um, and then by complete surprise, it got Timeless got picked up, um, and they worked it out so I could do both. But um, I Preacher, Preacher, I remember it was really funny because there's – there was times I, I fell asleep for both the shows because I was just working too hard. Like I was supposed to do a Comic-Con and I overslept. And I one time I was they flew me into New Orleans because I would shoot New Orleans like maybe two days at the most and then fly back. And uh, it was really funny because it's the first time I got wellness checks from a hotel. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And what's funny is they were very different because of the region. So like I got, I got the well – so – I was at San Diego Comic-Con for Timeless literally the day after our last day of shooting. And mm-hmm. um, and I go to uh, – and I just pass out when I get to the hotel. I just – I can't, and I don't wake up. I'm supposed to wake up at 9 or something like that. I don't wake up um, at like 9-ish. I wake up. There's two um, huge dudes in my room um, in suits. Um, and they're like uh, – hello and i'm like and i realize it's it's got you know they've probably sent them into me for this so i can go to the comic-con and do all that i was like i'm fine thank you bye all right and you know and then they just leave right and i get ready and i go 
you know, because they have security check on you, you know, in case you've overdosed. So then, right, sure. So then the same thing happens to me in New Orleans, only as a brother. And and he's not in a suit. I don't know what he's dressed as, but he, he opens the door and he's like, hey, man, they're waiting on you, man. You got to get up. <laughs> like, oh, okay. All right, thanks, man. Fucking... You're not here for some massive convention, okay? You're just some guy in a hotel room. <laughs> like, it's like the freaking Underground Railroad here in New Orleans. Uh, <laughs> we got to go now. I was like, all right. All right. You know, and then I went to go shoot Preacher. Um, but Preacher was crazy, man. It was just, it was just, it's an insane show with the, the comic that it's based on is insane. It's, uh, you know, yeah. Seth and Evan. Um, and it was just, it was such a fun role. Like, again, I play like, I love playing these sensitive characters, you know what I mean? And, and it's really fun. Like Hoover and Featherstone, I played Hoover are part of this, um, clandestine, uh, fascist organization um, trying to take over the world and and replace the next uh, god based off of a clone of Jesus, and um, and as one does, as one does, and my guy isn't the most. Um, he's a really nice guy. <laughs> like I think in the yeah. version in the version of it in the comics, I think. Well, I don't remember if I made this my backstory or if it's in the comics. It's like he's a former teacher. Do you know what I mean? Just like, ah. a, <laughs> like, just a super nice guy, and he's like not a killer. I mean, my my partner is the exact opposite, total killer. You know that sort yeah. of thing. And so, dead-eyed sociopath. Yeah, yeah. And so, I always attacked it from the he's looking for he's a former Christian looking for spiritual guidance. Um, mm. um, and I think Julie always attacked it as um, we're going to take over the earth. Um, but we, (laughs) but we, we looked after each other, you know what I mean? We had, you know, we, me and her had almost a similar, um, experience as, as me and Jonathan Slavin, um, just being super codependent people on each other, just in different ways. It looked like a, uh, a, a blast to work on just had to be hard to like suddenly set up, study up on the mythology of a show that dense. Oh, well, you know, what's funny is I, I read it before. I read it all before I got the role. I literally. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. I literally, um, I mean, which is why I really wanted to do it. I think I was in Canada filming timeless. I, I saw the role and you know, they, they do a lot more comic book movies now and I like comic books or, I mean, obviously they do a lot more comic book entertainment in general. And so, um, I saw, I saw, I was able to find comics about, this immediately preacher and i immediately picked up preacher and i immediately thought it was great and it's super violent and super racist in in parts and super fucked up and you know i think it was just really adapted well um and and i love the world i mean when i first saw the trailer for the pilot of preacher i was like i'm in you know what i mean i yeah. i like i like dark comedy and and well choreographed violence you know it's all of that. Yeah. It's a super dark show. It is a super dark show, but I, I, it, the trailer was, was so compelling. And then you bring so many good actors into something that as outlandish as the show gets, you're like, yeah, all right, I'm in. That's fine. We got a clone. We have a clone of Jesus. And, uh, and, uh, there's this guy and there's a donkey on the couch and we're just going to roll with this. It just made sense yeah, because yeah. everyone's so good. 
Um, who were some guys you looked at when you were coming up as an actor where you're like, oh, that's that's the career I want, where there's some specific... We focus on character actors here on this show, but I'm, I'm open to other answers. Who were some guys you looked at where you're like, yes, that? Yeah, there's... Um... I mean, it's it, it's interesting. I think I have a, a couple different people. I mean, the careers I wanted were like, I wanted something between Eddie Murphy and Don Cheadle. You know, like Eddie Murphy was like one of my favorite. He's just, you know, I'm from Brooklyn. Eddie Murphy's from Brooklyn. He's one of the funniest people ever. Um, his movies are hilarious. You know what I mean? I could see myself in those roles. I really wanted that, you know, and. Don Cheadle was another one, you know, a lot of people want to be Denzel, you know, and I highly respect Denzel. Um, but I wanted Don Cheadle's career because, you know, he played mouse against Denzel, you know, he, he, he played mouse in devil in a blue dress. Yeah. yeah it's a phenomenal I mean? performance. Um, he, he, but he also will do comedy. He'll do ridiculous comedies and really takes it there and really gets dirty with it. And so I really, I really love that. Um, growing up, I was a huge fan of Peter Sellers. Um, really loved Peter Sellers. I mean, I don't know that there's a bigger character actor than Peter Sellers. No, I mean, he'll he'll play 38 roles in one movie. You know what I mean? Doctor Strange Love. Yeah. You know, he cut out a role that he was going to play. You know what I mean? He was going to be the he cowboy. Was supposed to do the Slim Pickens yeah, role. Yeah, be, I, I knew John would know it. Uh, <laughs> I knew John would know the very specific trivia of what role did Peter Sellers stop doing during Doctor Strange Love, aka how I learned to stop loving the bomb. How I learned to hey, love. We're friends. We're friends for a reason. Malcolm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, he was my favorite because he would transform and just take on these different roles. And, you know, I, I, I really love that. Uh, I was a big fan and still am of Bill Irwin. Um, oh, really? Yeah. I, another name. I'm a hundred percent sure, you know, um, he's a, uh, he's uh, a clown. Um, he's a, like a classically trained clown, uh, Camilo del Arte. Except when he decides to not be, and then he's a phenomenal dramatic yeah, actor. Yeah, and then, you know, he's, uh, you know, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? I think he won a Tony for, um, you know, and he's amazing. And then what's funny is, you know, Popeye, he's in Popeye and My Blue Heaven and, and right, Sesame right. Street. Um, yeah. And so, you know, Bill Irwin's interesting because I was in New York and I think he was probably in New York at the time when I was around, you know, my college age and, you know, I had been auditioning and, and acting and I remember I was getting seen by this particular casting agency and I remember they had like an Apple commercial or something like that. And so they had a handful of uh, sort of interesting actors that they were having audition, right? Just a couple select people. And I remember in the room at the time, in the waiting room, it was me and Bill Irwin. And wow. I'm sitting there and I'm like, this is the only opportunity I have. And I, and I went and I was like, hey. I, you probably don't have a lot of young dudes from black dudes from Brooklyn coming up to you and telling you this, but like you're one of the awesomest performers I've ever seen and you're dope. And if I ever get to work with you, that'd be amazing. And not too long after that, months after that, I got a call um, from, I think the signature theater um, mm -hmm. or playwrights horizons theater is one of those I feel like it was signature. And they wanted me to do a workshop with Bill Irwin. And, mm. and I got to do a workshop with him and it was, it was an insane masterclass because we were doing some Scapan maybe 
Um, oh, wow. I'm, not, I'm not sure, but it was it was him as sort of... But like an older French farce. Yes, exactly, you know? And so, you know, he's playing... He might have been playing a clown and I was his assistant, or he was playing some sort of performer and I was his assistant. And we workshopped that play for a week, and I remember him explaining a scene. And he goes, he goes, yeah, so, you know, you'll see him, and he'll sort of start taking on makeup, and he starts doing it. And it's the most brilliant fucking three minutes of someone pretending to put on makeup I've ever seen in my life. And I was like, that's, this is, this is why I'm here. You know, this is, this is amazing. Like, this is why you do theater. You know what I mean? Like moments like this, that like you can't recreate if you tried, you know? Do you, um, I, I was looking at your, your theater resume. You've done some stuff in LA, but it, it's hard to, find time to do theater in LA it's a big commitment if you've got a good TV career as you do it's hard to say oh I'm actually gonna you know take two months and lose money so I can do this thing over at Sacred Fools but do you miss it you know I I miss it but at the same time I kind of and I'm doing a play I'm doing Venus and Fur produced by my friend Kim Hamilton and with um my friend Chloe Wyatt Taylor um so that's going up March. I think. That's a great role for you. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's a great fucking role for you. Where are you doing it? Um, we're doing it at the Pico Playhouse. Um, um, I think March. I want to say March 2nd, 4th, and 5th, or, or somewhere in that area. Um, so so we're doing that. So I, I do constantly miss it. I do constantly miss that. But I kind of want to do, you know, what I would like to do after doing that is create more opportunities for folks in TV and movies so we can get paid, you know, it's, it's, you know, like that's kind of my goal is to create a show where I can hire some writers and, you know, and it's always my thing to fight for writers in the room and things like that. And so, you know, I just want to get paid and theaters, theaters rough, man, because you don't, you know, you don't make any, it's a failing business model. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a horrible business model. I mean, I remember, you know, the first time I left school, it was to go on tour with wit. And I was gone uh, six months, right? I was in a, uh, and it's probably the first time I started smoking weed by myself because I was, because I was, here. well, because I was like, I was like 18 years old traveling the country. The closest person to my age was 35, you know, and mm. I couldn't go out anywhere because I wasn't 21. So I was just, you know, who, who played the, who played the lead on the tour? Judith Light. Oh, good choice. Yeah, yeah, okay. Judith yeah. Light. She's awesome. Um, she gave me a journal that I had for years. I don't know where it is now, but I would literally write in. Um, but yes, yeah, so I was like the youngest on on tour and things like that. But um, well, you were no, playing like one of the one of the med students. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, mm-hmm. I was the only one who was actually a student at the time. Because <laughs> you also double part of your method. Yeah, you also double in that show. If you're one of the med students, you play you play a student in her actual class, and then you play a med student at, at the hospital. Uh, oh right, yeah, like an orderly or, or one of those sort of things. And so I was the only one that was like, and I was so annoyed because it was like it was a tour, so it was just like I was trying to do some weird stuff. Like I would try to do, and they'd be like, "No, there's where you put the intonation." I'm like, "Oh God." Um, you know, cause it's tour and they just like, they like do the show the exact same way, you know, Jeff did it. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. You know, interesting. Yeah. I've heard that from a few people who either replace or have gone on tour that like the show is the fucking show and you step into that mold. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Um, so like that was a really, that was a really interesting time, but I remember 
again, so I'd gone on tour for six months, right? Mm-hmm. My savings at the end of six months was, I want to say, half of my very first series regular paycheck. Yeah. Like, that is that is the difference in, in theater and, and TV and movies. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's hard to get really enthusiastic about losing that much. <laughs> yeah, I hear that. Yeah, it's weird. Well, it's you know, speaking of missing theaters, like now I started doing stand up again. Um, I did it probably a handful of times twenty years ago, and I have a bunch of stand up buddies, and so they were like, you know, let's do it again. And I was like, they're you know, almost like a dare, and I said, to hell with it, I'll do it, and. Um, it's funny because the pay to be a stand-up is even worse. Uh, <laughs> I realize <laughs> it's like it's like ten. Like my my first gig in twenty years, I go stand up and it's, it, I get paid ten dollars. And I thought it was a joke. Like I, I was like, "We're in a stand-up place. Good joke. Good bit." Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> he because the guy goes he goes. Uh, I don't know why they make us file tax forms for for ten dollars and i was like okay and i signed it and then he really gave me ten dollars and i was like this is bullshit i was like i'll kill your family <laughs> so, i kind of want to end on that note that's lovely <laughs> oh, good. um good joy and peace um you gotta i mean listen stand-up's fun it's a great hobby of a thriving tv career um and uh and and you're i think you're gonna create more opportunities for yourself and others i firmly believe that well, thank you, man. I appreciate it. That's the goal and the hope. Malcolm Barrett, you're the best. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you very much, John. And that is an episode wrap on Malcolm Barrett. You can see Malcolm live first weekend of March. He's doing a production at the Pico Playhouse in L.A. of David Ives' Venus in Furs. Check it out. In the meantime, please find him on social media at Malcolm Barrett on Twitter and over at Instagram at VerbalBeRappin'. Which sounds weird when I say it. Forever Dog. Household Faces is a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by John Ross Bowie, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Produced by Ben Blacker. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. Until next time, when's lunch? Mm